Can you imagine what it must have been like to be Peter in these two stories? Because last week, Peter was like gold star student, right? Peter is the one calling Jesus the Messiah, and Jesus is like, yeah, this is from God. This is, this is exactly right. And then the very next story we get, Jesus is calling him Satan. Talk about a fall from grace. <laughs> but really, uh, and this was brought to my attention last week. It was a question somebody had. It's like, what, what is going on here? Why is Jesus calling Peter Satan? So the English here does a really terrible job at telling us what's going on here. Um, in both the Hebrew scriptures and the Greek even in this case where it's a proper noun, uh, it's capitalized uh, as a name. Um, Satan is never conceptualized the way we think of Satan. So when I say the word, certain things come into your brain. Certain things, red, skin, pitchfork, fire, horns. That's not biblical. That's from Dante's Inferno, the divine comedy. You can thank that for the conceptualization that Christians have about the devil, Satan, because that is not a biblical idea, none of that. So when they are talking about the devil or Satan in both the Hebrew scriptures and in the New Testament, it is always with the idea of adversary, accuser, uh, an opponent, yes, but not in the way that we conceptualize it. In fact, that many of you didn't know that Satan, the Satan, the accuser, sits on God's counsel in many Old Testament accounts. This is before, I mean, this is post-fall, right? When we conceptualize that Satan fell, the accuser, the one here described, sits on God's counsel. In fact, it's why we have the whole story of Job. So anyway, that's just a little, that's just an aside. That isn't even what this is about today. But I wanted to get that out there because it confused some of us before, and it can be confusing. So when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, your concerns are the concerns of man, not of God. He's saying here, he's not calling Peter literally Satan. He doesn't think he's demon-possessed. He's saying, you are in opposition to me right now. This idea that you have is in complete opposition to the way of God. That's what he's doing here. So now that we have that off the table, all cleared up, let's get into today's message, which kind of still ties into that. By the way, the next couple of minutes are going to be huge Harry Potter spoilers. So, if you never made it through, sorry, you had like, I don't know, 20 years or something. My favorite character from the Harry Potter series is Severus Snape. Professor Severus Snape. And Yeah, that's right. You get it. If you know anything about the story, Severus Snape was the um, potions instructor. He always had his aspirations to be the professor of uh, defense against the dark arts, right? Uh, he was not very nice to Harry and his friends. He was gloomy. He was uh, Alan Rickman. One of my favorite actors played him in the movies. And it's just, ah, uh, just gold. Perfect stuff. He played that role perfectly. He was always picking on Harry and his friends. From the beginning, the author sets up Snape to be the villain or a villain of the story. Not the villain. That's, everybody knows that he who must not be named. But Snape is like one of his generals. And the story sets it up from book one to be that way. His position as the number one henchman of Voldemort, the main villain, is solidified at the very end of the second to last book where Snape kills Professor Dumbledore. Professor Dumbledore, one of the most powerful wizards in wizarding history. Snape casts the killing curse on him. 
Now he does this, we find out later, to save a student from doing it because he didn't want him to go down that road. But we have this immensely evil character, or so we're told. But here's the twist that you find out in the next book, the last book. Turns out Snape had been working secretly for the good guys ever since Harry's parents were killed. The guilt he felt over telling Voldemort part of the prophecy that led to their deaths is what drew him to do this. And why would he do that? Because he was in love with Harry's mom and his whole big old soap opera, drama. But all of his sour and sneaky acts towards Harry and his friends were actually moves to protect Harry and his friends in their fight against Voldemort. And he was working as a double agent from the inside. It was very good stuff, really well written. It's like, surprise! I'm not the villain. I'm the hero that's been in the shadows all along. In fact, one of the things that I, I loved Snape from the beginning when we thought he was evil, and I was vindicated in the end when it turns out this isn't a story about Harry Potter. This is a story about Severus Snape. And a long, Angela's shaking her head because she hates Snape. That's one of her least favorite characters, right? But it really is a story about him and his love and what love will drive you to do. Suddenly, it isn't just the guy you love to hate. Snape is the guy you hate to love, which is why she shakes her head. And it makes you question all your assumptions about him from the beginning. You have to go back and start thinking about. And if you rewatch the movies or reread the books, you read it in a completely different light because you know who he is now. And you know what he's done. And so from the beginning, it changes how you view every single interaction. And it makes you think about how you judge people and characters in general. That's what a good story does. It, it makes you wonder about like your life outside the story. So when you get this character, Snape, evil to the core until you realize, whoa, he's not at all. It makes you wonder, do I do that? Do I do that? And that's just the kind of shakeup that we need. That kind of shakeup, it forces us to reconsider our judgments, our expectations. And that's exactly what is happening here with Peter and Jesus. That's exactly what is happening here in this Peter and Jesus scenario. Have you ever experienced one of these kinds of plot twists in your life? And even to make it faith-based in how you understand Jesus. Have you ever thought you knew a certain thing only to, be, only to find out that you weren't right and it made you reconsider everything else you thought you knew? That's what's happening right here. Because this passage should be one of those moments for us. This passage should be one of those moments for us since Peter's expectations of the Messiah aren't that far off about how many of us view Jesus and the expectations that we have for what Christ ought to be like. Let me recap just that little bit for you. From, the time, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him and said, Never, Lord, never. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned to him and said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter's thoughts here, his expectations about the Messiah were deeply shaped by the social norms and religious norms of his time, which is all of us. Many of our views about God and Jesus are, are not shaped by the Bible. They are shaped by the society around us, by what others tell us, 
Remember last week I said Jesus wanted to know what others had to say about him just so he could smack that down and say, now what do you say? What does it mean to you? This is just an extension of that. Peter is just like us, but he's in sandals. Peter grew up in a society where the Messiah was expected to be, expected to be this kick-butt kind of figure, this conquer-the-world kind of figure. We're talking sword-swinging, Roman-overthrowing, superhero not someone who talks about turning the other cheek or who'd be willing to die at the hands of the very people he was supposed to overthrow, right? Saw, I've been seeing this a lot, where a Southern Baptist leader, a leader of the Southern Baptist Church. Now, if you know anything about the Southern Baptist Church, it's very conservative. So what I'm about to say to you ought to wreck you a little bit when one of their leaders says that they have people, they have pastors coming to them who say that their followers of their followers in church, when they literally quote the Sermon on the Mount, are literally quoting the words of Jesus as given in the Sermon on the Mount, we've got congregants out there saying that that's too weak, that doesn't work anymore. And when the pastors are like, I'm literally quoting Jesus, they're like, yeah, that doesn't work. So let me say what I said again. Peter expected a kick-butt Messiah, big, strong, gonna come in and wreck things, overthrow our overlords. And Jesus said, no, 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 (laughs) that's not how this works. There are many, many, many of us who are much more like Peter here than we'd like to admit. And at the end of this month, I'm going to start a six-week series on Revelation. And one of the things I will say right now out front is the picture we have of Jesus in Revelation is dramatically different than anywhere else in the Bible. And many of us are hanging our hats on the Revelation Jesus rather than the Gospel Jesus. We're going to talk about that for about six weeks. So come on back because it's going to be a ride. But Peter's expectations were shaped by these epic tales of the Hebrew scriptures and folklore, things they expected. Many, many Jewish people expected the Messiah to be this. So it's not even as criticism as much as it is. It was just the way they believed everything they had learned up to that point telling them that the good guy always wins in a big flashy way. If that ain't American culture, I don't know what is. The big guy always wins in a big flashy way. There's a reason why the Marvel Cinematic Universe makes billions of dollars because it sits on that very premise that the good guy wins in a big flashy way. But Jesus stops him dead in probably one of the most direct rebukes we have of Jesus giving anybody here. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus, hear the record scratch. Jesus is like, no, absolutely not. You are wrong. How often do we do that? How often do we do that? We've got these prepackaged ideas of what God should be like, what good and bad should look like, what our life should be. It's as if we have a mental checklist and we're continually surprised or disappointed when God doesn't tick off the boxes that we've laid out. Our norms are shaped by our culture, our upbringing, and our personal biases, the whole lot. Just like Peter, we too struggle to rethink who Jesus is because it conflicts with what society has told us is right, or successful, or even holy. Maybe it's the way we idolize power and wealth, or how we stigmatize weakness meekness, and vulnerability. These biases shape our understanding of who we think Jesus is, who we think Jesus ought to be. 
So when Jesus starts talking about a path that doesn't involve crowns or thrones or kicking overlord butt, Peter's like, no, wait, that's not my script. That's not the script I have for you. That is not the part you're supposed to play. He can't even fathom it. And aren't we all just a little bit guilty of that? Aren't we all just a little bit guilty of that? We love to put God in a box. We love to put God into a box that fits our limited understanding, just like Peter tried to do here. And that's what makes this story so relatable and eye-opening for us, is because, again, I say, Peter is us with sandals. So I want you to consider how we, like, pilder, like, blah, like Peter, build our own image of who Jesus should be and, and think about how that affects our relationship with him and with others. Because maybe we want a Jesus or expect a Jesus who supports our political views, who supports our military conquests, who supports our economic structures, who supports our lifestyles, who supports our personal dreams and ambitions. We want a Jesus that doesn't challenge those things. We want a Jesus that confirms and affirms those things. And if Jesus doesn't confirm or affirm those things, then we say, well, that's not Christian. Raise your hand in here if you've ever labeled somebody a real Christian. Yeah, y'all are liars. It's okay, Jesus loves you anyway, and I'm trying. Thank you for laughing at that. It's jokes, people, it's jokes, relax, for most of you. But there are dangers in this custom-made Jesus. Come on, it's, it's the beginning of September. We're all a little tired, right? No, but there is this danger, right, in this custom-made version of Jesus. What are the risks of shaping Jesus into the Jesus we want rather than letting Jesus shape us? What are the risks of this custom-made Jesus, this designer Jesus? Well, one is we miss out on the real Jesus when we only see him the way we want to see him. One of the most important things about Jesus, of the Gospels especially, is that Jesus was not concerned with confirming the status quo. He was not concerned with confirming your belief, their belief. Jesus was always challenging folks. And so if we are never challenged by Jesus and we only see him the way we want to see him, then we are missing out on the core of the gospel. The core of the good news isn't that everything's fine and just continue on. The core of the gospel is nothing is fine. We got to fix it. And that means change. Jesus challenged the status quo all the time. The risks are we create a super shallow faith when we're only creating a mirror image of ourselves looking back and calling that Jesus. Our faith is unable to handle life's curveballs when Jesus is only an echo of our own beliefs and wants. If we build up a Jesus that's just like us and then things don't go the way we expect them to, our faith can't handle that because we have our faith in ourselves and not in Jesus. When we start shaping Jesus in our own image, then it means we start shaping Christianity into an exclusive club that only caters to people like us, that only caters to people like us. And Jesus broke that barrier definitively when he opened up Christianity to Gentiles, to non-Jews. But when we start shaping Jesus to look like us, then we only accept people that look, act, think, sound like us. We use our faith to justify our biases rather than to challenge them. This designer Jesus dilutes his revolutionary teachings and transformative power. But there's beauty in being wrong, y'all. Some of you know I'm wrong a lot. You like to tell me. You like to remind me. 
of how wrong I am all the time. And there is beauty in being wrong, right? There is transformative power in admitting that we might have gotten it wrong about Jesus and allowing him to guide us to the truth of who he is. No one likes to be wrong. So let me just put that out there. I, we don't want to be wrong. Like, nobody likes to be wrong. We especially don't like to be told we're wrong. We usually get defensive right off the bat, whether it's true or it's not, when we're told we're wrong, and whether we're actually wrong or not. And no one here wants to believe that we have built a faith on a fake Jesus. But many of us have built an entire faith on a false Jesus, or at least an incomplete Jesus. I'll give you that. How about that? I won't go so far as to say it's fake Jesus. But I will say that many of us have built our faith on an incomplete Jesus. And the only way we're going to know and grow is by admitting that we might be wrong and letting the grace and love of Jesus guide us into new understandings. The beauty in being wrong isn't in doubling down in, on our wrongness and celebrating that, which a lot of us love to do. Not just in this building, but in general. We love doubling down on our dumbness, on our wrongness. We love it. Somebody tells us we're wrong, we don't, like, assimilate new information and change. We stomp our feet and say, I do it myself. The beauty is not found in the doubling down. The beauty is found when we confront our wrongness, when we are confronted with our wrongness, and we make the decision to move through that discomfort. We don't avoid the discomfort of being wrong. We embrace it and move through the discomfort and grow from it into a place of better understanding. It is okay to be wrong. I've said this before. It is okay to be wrong. It is not okay to stay wrong when you don't have to. Because sometimes, like Peter, we got to get it wrong before we get it right. We got to get it wrong before we get it right. Sometimes the best thing that can happen to us is for Jesus, is for Jesus to say, you've got it all wrong. Because that's where transformation begins. Nothing ever changes if you just turn Jesus into a yes man. Let me say that one again. Nothing will ever change in our world, in your life, if you've only turned Jesus into a yes man. So, are you willing to embrace the discomfort? Are you willing to embrace the uncomfortable truth? Because let me promise you, having the Messiah give you a gold star in one moment and then call you Satan in the next probably didn't feel great. Did Peter run from that? Did Peter stomp his feet? Did Peter say, nope, this is, this is what I believe. I was raised this way. Nope. Jesus said, I or Peter said, I trust you, Jesus. I'm going to keep following. And he still got it wrong again and again and again. And even the rock upon which Jesus built the church denied him in the end. Peter was not perfect. Peter didn't have it all figured out. And you can make a very good argument to say the disciples never had it figured out. Even after Jesus was raised from the dead, he still had to confirm it to him again about this is what was meant to be. This is what happened. And then, after they received the Spirit, then they started moving on. And they still, they still didn't do a great, great job of it. We always like to think about this historic part of uh, the church that was unified in belief and agreement. Nah, Paul and Peter agreed on almost nothing other than Jesus. It's the reason why Peter wasn't the apostle to the Gentiles. So I say all that to say this, sometimes you got to get it wrong to get it right. Sometimes you have to confront the discomfort and move through it and trust that Jesus is going to show you the way anyway, even if you've been wrong about some really big things. 
I want you to explore all that. Are you willing to admit your wrongness in order to come closer to righteousness? I want you to explore that this week. I want you to disrupt your patterns to make space for a revolutionary Jesus. Because when we understand who Jesus is, which was last week, and what Jesus is about, which is this week, it's groundbreaking. And it's as groundbreaking and revolutionary today as it ever was. Amen? Amen.